Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming, and we also welcome those watching remotely. I'd like to introduce Dr. Yibing Kang, visiting us from Princeton today. Dr. Kang does not have any financial interest. He reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. And he attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. <coughs> Yibing received his bachelor's from Fudan University in Shanghai, China, and his PhD in genetics at Duke University in the year 2000. They went on to do a postdoc at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, with Joan Massagay, uh, where he began to specialize in the area of metastasis to breast cancer. And I'm most familiar with his work in, in bone, but he's worked with um, homing to other organs as well. Yubin has a long list of uh, very high impact publications, which I won't run through, but I'm sure it's going to um, it's going to it's going to become apparent in, his, in the data that he presents in his talk. So he's been at Princeton um, since the year 2004, has moved up to the ranks of professor, and is now the Warner Lambert Park Davis Professor of Molecular Biology in the Department of Molecular Biology at Princeton, and also a member of the Kansas Institute of New Jersey. Evening. Thank you. Thank you, Todd, for the nice introduction. Can you hear me from the microphone? Yeah, OK. Um, so my lab uh, have been studying uh, breast cancer metastasis for the last 10 years. And actually, the thinking of the field has been evolving over those 10 years, from the beginning about how we think about what metastasis genes really are and how they, they emerge in the cancer cell. So I'm going to actually t tell you a little bit of historical perspective about how our thoughts actually evolved from those early days of trying to understand you know, how metastatic cancer cells acquire their metastatic ability. So before I start, I just want to need to show you this slide that I don't have any conflict of interest related to my presentation today. So we all know that most cancer patients die from metastasis to various different vital organs. And particularly in breast cancer, these are the four most common sites that are uh, affecting a lot of late-stage disease patients. So bone is the most frequent site, is often, oftentimes the first site of metastasis, affecting about 70 to 80% of late-stage uh, breast cancer patients. Um, and more and more patients are actually dying with uh, visceral metastasis, especially brain metastasis has been increasing percentage-wise. Uh, many patients die from liver metastasis and, and lung metastasis. So the study of, of metastasis has, uh, you know, has been going on for the last uh, 100 years or so since the beginning of this so-called see and saw hypothesis proposed by Stephen Paget. So we have some basic understanding of, of metastasis. First of all, we know that no matter how, how grave the, this process looks like, it's actually highly inefficient. So out of the millions of cells that are circulating as CTCs in the patient's blood, uh, very few of them are eventually able to make a metastasis. So it's a highly selective process looking for those highly adapted cells that are not only able, able to survive in the dissemination process, but also be able to thrive in an organ that is completely different from the primary tumors. Um, we also know that because of this highly selective process, the tumor cells that are landing are able to grow as metastasis different organs, usually possess this collection of so-called organ-specific metastasis genes that collectively give them that 
uh, advantage in a different organ. So the question then is whether there are so-called metastogenes that give the tumor cell a selective uh, advantage only in a particular organ site, but do not really confer a con uh, advantage in the primary tumor site, so-called pure metastogenes that do not have oncogenic functions. So you know, my, in my early days, try to study this question of metastasis. I work with John Messinger, and, and while we're busy at work, try to do this in vivo selection to look for bone metastasis. Actually, Bob Weinberg published this very uh, influential uh, opinion article in, in, uh, in Nature, in, in which he, he basically is saying there's no metastasis, uh, and we, we should you know, uh, stop looking for them. So the conclusion is that many of researchers, um, so the, the argument he has is that if the metastasis, by definition, only confer a growth advantage in the distant side, but not in the primary tumor side, then there's no selecting advantage of those rare cells, rare tumor cells that overexpress those metastasis. So because they are going to be so rare, you are not, they, are, they are not going to be a dominant population in the primary tumor, they will never really be successful to emerge and disseminate into a distant organ. With that argument, he concluded that as we are looking, we have searched far and wide for metastasis, but perhaps the culprit that had been staring us in the face for a long time, the mutant genes that are known to confer the awareness lacking advantage early on, so-called oncogenes, may be the same one that further down the road empower metastasis. In other words, metastasis are selected for because they also have some advantage in the primary tumor growth, we just don't know about it. So I was uh, pretty uh, discouraged by reading this article because I was about to look for metastasis, and, and Bob, one of the most influential scientists, telling us that they, they do not exist, and we should not look for them. But interestingly, uh, this is published in Nature in 2012. So interestingly, two years later, uh, Bob published a paper with Jing Yang, who happened to live downstairs of me in, back in graduate school at Duke. So I know Jing is a very good scientist, and I know his work is very solid. And so Jing worked with Bob to show, to uh, find this gene called twist that drives metastasis, right? Because it promotes EMT and invasion and metastasis. And it just happened that we were asked by Cell Press to write a commentary on this article. So me and, Bob, me and Joan took the opportunity to, to take a swipe at, at Bob, <laughs> uh, re reminding him of his article back in 2012, uh, 2002. Well, actually, this, this is 2002, not 2012. It's a typo. Um, so, so we wrote that twist appeared to be a bona fide metastasis that specifically promotes tumor cell metastasis with no apparent benefit to the growth of the primary tumor. Therefore, his argument, Bob's argument, that no such gene may exist, and we cite, of course, his review, uh, therefore seemed muted by the own work of Bob. <laughs> and we, we, we thought that while we settled this debate, that they are indeed metastasis. But I'm going to uh, use the, this lecture and, and uh, to go back as we revisit it and, and tell you that actually Bob is smart, that he, his, his uh, argument at that time does have value. We just didn't know enough at that time. Um, so I want you keep, to keep this in mind. So when you look at the process of cancer metastasis, this is so-called metastatic cascade that we all familiar with, right? So the tumor cell, they emerge as primary tumors through oncogenic mutations in the normal organs, for example, in the membrane, and initially are encapsulated, surrounded by, by a basement membrane, and some of the cells will gain the invasive ability and break through this basement membrane and eventually 
get into the vascular of the brothel circulation and disseminate. So if they can survive this process, they will land it in a different organ. And then the challenge is to survive in a foreign microenvironment and then thrive as macrometastasis. This is actually the most rate limited step. So when you look at this, um, there are basically, I would say, two major challenges that the tumor, tumor cell has to overcome to become metastatic. First of all, most of the cancer, cancer are carcinoma. So by definition, they, they arise from epithelial tissues. And epithelial cells have very tight cell-cell uh, adhesions between each other, so, uh, and they also have polarities. So the first limitation is to break through that intrinsic limit of uh, carcinoma cells when they arrive from epithelial tissues and to gain that mobility. That's the first challenge they have, have to overcome. And second is that when they uh, arrive at the distal organ, they have to survive that, that distinct microenvironment that's completely different from the organ that they, they, they become primary tumor from, for example, in Remmergrad. So the, the next biggest challenge is to how do they cope with the distinct microenvironment, not only survive, uh, survive but also benefit from the interaction with different stromal cells in that microenvironment. So you think that these are complete, two different complete kind of challenges that, so the early step of invasion and migration probably is very different from the late step of colonization. But I will argue that many of these steps are connected together and that's why we can go back to Baldwin's argument that you know, metastasis genes could be traced to their function in primary tumor formation. So the, the, the talk I'm going to uh, focus today on these two major areas and the connection between the two. So I'm going to argue that uh, for metastatic traits to emerge, um, the normal adult tissue homeostasis, how the cell fate is determined, how differentiation is maintained, has to be disrupted. So alterations in the cell fate regulation will have a dramatic influence in the metastatic behavior of the tumor cell. And that also relates to how oncogenic early events actually influence the metastatic behavior of the late events in metastasis. Second is that the metastatic traits um, also depends on the evolution of how the tumor cell adapt to a distinct tumor microenvironment um, and, and allow them to adapt to an organ uh, environment that is very different from the primary tumor. And then I'm going to show you that the, the so-called metastasis genes that we found in here as organ trophic metastasis gene actually can play a role in, in initial tumor initiation in the primary tumor as well. So there's a, a connection of these traits shared by the common molecule, even though the downstream mechanism could be different. And so the lab, uh, my lab is mostly interested in breast cancer. And so we have also a interest in studying memory gland, normal homeostasis and, and development of the memory gland. So when you look at uh, the memory gland, this is the mouse cross-section of the memory dot. You can see there are different lineages of cells represented with different immunostenians. Essentially, you can identify that the cells facing the lumen, those are the so-called luminal epithelial cells that secrete the milk. They are surrounded by uh, the myopsidal cells in, standing in red here. And then they're further surrounded by uh, stromal cells, for example, fat cells, immune cells, endocidal cells, fibroblasts, and so on. And you can use different markers. I'm going to not go, go in, not going to go through them to identify different lineage. Different lineage. Um, and it's interesting that most of the mammogram development happen after birth, during puberty, and also during pregnancy. So during puberty, there's extensive ductal branching morphogenesis that the, 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 the memory fat pad will be completely covered with these ductal uh, trees. And then 
during pregnancy, there is even more dramatic expansion of the alveolar luminal epithelial cells that uh, give rise to a very extensive epithelial coat, uh, uh, architecture that give rise to uh, the, allow the secretion of the milk. And after winning, then that extensive alveolar epithelium has to undergo apoptosis and return the mice memory epithelium back to a virgin state. And because of this cycle of expansion and evolution, akin to many of the tissue, adult tissues that undergo also this cycles of refreshment, there's a belief, and now it's confirmed now, that the so-called memory glands themselves exist in the adult uh, mammals that allow this continuous process of renewal to happen. So a lot of work had gone into studying what maintained the stemness of the memory glands themselves and what drive their differentiation into different lineage, into luminal lineage, into the myopsidal lineage, and even in the luminal lineage, you have ductal luminal and the alveolar luminal epithelial cells. So uh, it's not surprising that many of the genes and pathways that are known to be important for the self-renewal of either ESLs or other adult tissue stem cells are also shown to be important for mammogram stem cell activity. So, so you, you know BMI1, WINT, uh, which has been shown to be important for many of stem cell systems, also important is for memory ground stem cell. And Jim uh, and others have shown that P63 is also important for maintaining memory ground stem cell activity. Um, so more recent work by Weinberg's group also showed that this transcriptional factor called SNAIL2, which have a different name called SLUG, is important as a master transcriptional regulator of, uh, of uh, mammogram stem cell activity. So this is an important transcription factor previously known by developmental biologists to be important to driving epithelial mesenchymal transition during a very important developmental state called neural crest migration. So you can see this is the Xenoplus embryo. The cells in a, uh, in, in a neural crest have very high level of slug expression. And that allow those uh, neural crest cells, which come from epithelial lineage to differentiate uh, to to uh, become mesenchymal cells and then allow them to be to have the mobility to migrate throughout this developing embryo to give rise to monocytes some of the immune tissues even some of the skeletal tissues in, in our facial area so this has been well established as one of the key master drivers snail snail one and snail two both are important to driving this emt process and what happened in in one lab is uh um, Wenjun Guo, who also was my classmate, uh, uh, and actually lived, lived in the same dorm as me back in college. Um, so it's nice to have all these different classmates doing the same kind of things with you that you can learn from them. Um, so so Wenjun Guo used a, a limited scale screening to look out for EMT-like transcription factors that play a role in driving stemness, because Bob is one of the first to propose there's a connection between EMT and stem cell activity. And what he found is that slug together with SOX9, allow this mammogram stem cell to maintain stemness. And you can overexpress the two factors and, and make a luminal progenitor cell to gain the stemness. And the same control circuitry also exists in the, in the breast cancer stem cell. So these two factors can drive the cancer <coughs> stem cell activity. So this is the interesting factor that I want you to remember because I'm going to go back to it. But essentially, these are the key genes that people know to be important to driving mammogram stem cell activity maintain the activity. In terms of differentiation, these are many some of the key drivers of luminal differentiation. And Galaxy is well known by the work of Zeno Wolf and others, showing that it's essential for driving luminal differentiation. And interestingly, Galaxy is the third most mutated gene in human breast cancer. 
and you can imagine that losing the luminal cell, losing gala 3, will revert back to a more stem cell state as we drive tumor initiating cell activity. The factor I'm going to initially talk about is this uh, another transcriptional factor, X family transcriptional factor called L5. And L5 play a very important role also in the luminal differentiation, especially in luminal, aviolar luminal expansion during pregnancy. And this is well demonstrated by two different groups, uh, Omandi group and Seth Singhawk's group who collaborate with in a series of genetic studies. And I'm going to show you the data from Omandi's group here. So what they show is that if you look at the virgin animal, mammary gland, of the wild-type animal versus the L5 knockout animal, there's no difference. There's no defect in branching morphogenesis during puberty. But when you look at the knockout animal of wild-type mice versus the L5 knockout animal pregnant mice, you can see the pregnant wild-type mice have this you know, expensive uh, aviola expansion. But the L5 knockout pregnant mice look like they are virgin animals. They never have the ability to expand the aviola luminal cells. So this shows L5 is essential for that process. What we Notice is that L5 is frequently downregulated in, in breast cancer, similar to the, the situation with GALA3, which is often mutated and also lose the function in breast cancer. So it's intriguing. Uh, you can see that in both ductal carcinoma and lobular carcinoma comparing tumor versus normal tissue, you can see this downregulation of uh, L5 expression. And you can already see this downregulation of L5 even in the early stage hyperplasia. You know, not, not, not aggressive tumor yet. So this is a relatively early event happen in breast cancer progression. So the question is, what is the role of L5? Does it have any kind of tumor suppressive role in, in breast cancer? And we thought it might have a connection to driving the metastatic behavior of, of uh, and also there's a connection to cancer stem cell activity, but we are focused on metastasis. The, the idea actually come from the um, initial study, not looking at the cancer cell, but looking at the um, the uh, mem um, let me just completely turn it off so that you can actually see it. Oh. All off. I mean, there's so. <laughs> all right. So um, if you just stare at it, you, you can see that Ecatherian staining. Um, which stand for adherent junctions between epithelial cells. The normal mice have a lot of this e-cathering expressed in the membrane uh, during pregnancy. But you can look at the L5 knockout animals. Uh, many of them actually almost completely lost this e-cathering localization in the membrane. So they lose this key hallmarks of epithelial cells. On the other hand, we, we have another set of staining looking for mesenchymal marker vimentine here. So here we're using beta catenin, which binds to e-cathering and mem localizing the membrane. Um, but we use vimentin to stand for mesenchymal-like cell. And in a normal memory ground, you don't see any of the rest standing of vimentin. But in the, uh, in the L5 knockout animals, you can see in the luminal epithelial cells, they are oftentimes ectopic overexpression of vimentin in those luminal epithelial cells. So this is an early indication that L5 loss caused the reduction of e expression expressing and overexpression of the mesenchymal marker. And then that's it pointing to the direction that there are probably uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition going on. And that is validated using a, a more comprehensive <coughs> microarray profiling analysis of the wild type versus L5 knockout memory gland. This is a, a still normal tissues. And you can see many of the mesenchymal marker genes are indeed highly expressed in the L5 knockout animal. 
including many of the muscle called muscle drivers of EMT transcription factors of ZEP1, uh, twist, and snail family. They're all upregulated in the alpha knockout mammogram. And this is a so-called gene set enrichment by main analysis to show the previously reported EMT or cancer stem cell signature are highly enriched in the L5 knockout mammograms. But again, this is even though this is very strong validation of L5 loss in connection to EMT, this is still in the normal tissues in the mice, and we want to see whether this connection also exists in the human breast cancer. So we start with two different cell lines. T47D is the is the ER positive luminal-like breast cancer that is believed to be weakly metastatic. And indeed, it maintains e cutting expression and it has a very high level of L5 expression. Now, we use siRNA to knock down L5. You can see vimentin goes up. And also, looking at the cell shape, you can see they change the shape from epsilon-like cell to become much more <coughs> like mesenchymal spindle-like shape. And the e cutting expression in the membrane is uh, significantly reduced. And beta cutting is mislocalized from the membrane to the cytoplasm. And also, in the transwell migration assay, you can see knocking down L5 increased the migration ability of the tumor cell. Conversely, you can start with MDMB231. This is the highly mesenchymalized cell, ER negative and, and highly migratory, and does not ha have expression of E-cathirin. It does not have any L5 expression. So when we use lens virus to restore L5 expression, you can see again the cells start to change shape from mesenchymalized spindle-like shape to become more cobblestone-like, epsilon-like shape. Beta continuing again is localized. Remember, this is too weak to be seen in this light, and then environmental expression is reduced. Importantly, also in the migration assay, overexpressing L5 reduced the, express, uh, the migration ability of the tumor cell. So, the reason for this phenotype is because <coughs> then we did, of course, microarray and also a lot of chip, chip analysis to identify the target. This is a, the target of L5 transcription factor to see why L5. Uh, inhibit EMT. And the conclusion, I'm going to, not going to go through the detail, the conclusion is that L5 does that by transcriptionally suppress the expressing of SNAIL2. So as in here, SNAIL2 drive EMT and SNAMNIS, and during differentiation, L5 is induced by hormone and then start to repress SNAIL2 expression and allow luminal differentiation to happen. So this is the circuitry that we want to then go back to the human tumor to see if it exists and what is important. So if L5 down-regulates SNAIL2, you should see negative correlation between the expression of these two genes. And this is indeed the case in microarray analysis of human tumor samples. You can see a negative correlation between the two genes. Importantly, also, um, we want to see whether these two genes have prognosis power. If L5 suppress EMT and suppress stemness, uh, it should correlate with good prognosis. And that is indeed the case. High level alpha is good metastasis-free survival, and low level is, is poor prognosis. Interestingly, this, only, this correlation only exists in the ER-negative cohort patients. ER-positive, we don't see this correlation. And we, we actually don't know. We have some speculation about why, but we don't know why is that. So again, we extend this analysis to a much bigger composite database of 1,500 patients, much bigger data set. And again, you're seeing this uh, correlation of L5 high with good prognosis, and it's negative regulation target SNAIL2, which drive ENT and, and, and uh, metastasis and stem cell activity. High level uh, SNAIL2 is very poorly prognosis. So this is validating that L5 is you know, inhibiting invasion and metastasis EMT by targeting SNAIL.
So this is the clinical correlation. We want to then use the mouse model to see we can validate the functional importance of that. So we use 4T1 because uh, it can spontaneously metastasize as long in an immunocompetent model, highly, highly efficient in doing that. When you overexpress L5, you can reduce the uh, uh, metastasis significantly. Now, if snail is downstream negative regulation target, you, you will expect to see if we restale, restore snail too. In the L5 high, we should restore the invasive ability of the tumor cell. And that is indeed the case in the L5 and SNL2 double overexpression. You can see re restore high metastatic ability of the tumor cell. The final test is, is the genetic modified mouse model. Uh, so L5 knockout is lethal, but we can use conditional knockout in the mammogram to analyze the impact of L5 in metastasis using the MMTB new model of mouse memory gland tumors. This is similar to human core 2 and can also spontaneously metastasize the lung. We cross that mouse with either the wild-type mice or the heterozygous knockout of L5 or homozygous knockout of L5 in the memory gland. And you can look at the lung metastasis incidence is increasing with, lo with lower and lower dose of L5. Lesion area, uh, the, number, the number of lesions is increased and lesion area is increased. So you can see that the L5 knockout mice have developed these huge lung lesions. When you stay for snail 2, they express much higher snail 2 compared to wild type mice. So this again is, is genetic evidence showing indeed L5 is surprising metastasis and losing L5 increases the metastasis behavior of tumor cell by increasing snail 2 expression. So the lesson we learned from this is that the circuitries that exist in the normal mammogram is corrupted in the breast cancer. And actually not only relate to initiation of the tumor in early hyperplasia, they also influence the behavior of a cancer cell when they start to metastasize. So what happened in the normal mammogram is L5, SNL2 is high in the mammogram stem cell. So during differentiation, during pregnancy, L5 um, is induced by hormone and suppressed SNL2, and that allowed luminal differentiation to happen. So what happened in breast cancer is maybe in some early stage, very early stage, tumor, they have high level L5. But L5 is then silenced, and we believe some of that is epigenetics. Um, that allows snail 2 to escape its negative regulation. So when the snail, snail 2 goes up, it will drive EMT and metastasis, and we also know snail 2 drive cancer stem cell activity, both of which will, will increase the metastatic behavior of cancer cell. So this is the similar phenomenon as we actually see in GALA3 model as well. And not only in breast cancer, in, in many other kinds of cancer, Tylerjax have some recent work in lung cancer showing that uh, NKX 2.1 is a transcendent factor that drives terminal differentiation of, luminal, uh, of epithelial cells in the lung, and, and lung cancer often lose that transcendent factor as well. Essentially, return the lung cancer cell back to a progenitor or stem cell state before the cell fate determination you know, to drive differentiation either to the lung lineage or the gut lineage. And, and we also see the same thing in pancreatic cancer, many other cancer type as well. With the emerging theme that many of the terminal differentiation factors are lost in highly aggressive tumors. This is consistent with pathologist's view that when you look at a differentiated state, the lower, the poorly, more fully differentiated tumor cells are, the more aggressive they are. And we believe the reason that is, is it returned the differentiated cell back to a less differentiated state, and doubted not only the invasiveness, EMT-like phenotype and zenkimo features, but also stem cell capabilities. 
And people have uh, called them different names. They call them EMT, they call them cancer stem cell, but essentially it's all about de-differentiation, losing those cell phase terminal differentiation factors. And that allow the tumor cell to gain the aggressiveness, not only in invasion, but tumor initiation as well. So this is looking from the angle of starting actually from studying the cell that, that drives differentiation in normal organs. Actually, it end up finding genes important for metastasis. I'm going to reverse the direction to tell you that if we start from trying to find genes important for metastasis, we actually oftentimes see the connection with normal homeostasis and early tumor different, uh, initiation. So one of the most important um, model system that we study in the lab at referred to is, is bone metastasis because this is a very frequent event, as I mentioned earlier. In human breast cancer, about 70% of patients will, will have these skeletal complications. It's a very painful complication because you can see this is a normal woman, pelvic bone, compared to a patient with bone metastasis in this area. And even if you are not radiologist, you can tell there's massive loss of the bone matrix here. And that causes a lot of problems. The patient will have pathological fractures. They also have abnormal increase of the calcium in the blood, and that could be a life-threatening <coughs> condition. And growth of the tumor in the bone marrow also would reduce the, the hemolipotic function of the normal, normal bone, and also sometimes cause nerve compression um, syndromes that also decapacitate patients. So this is an important clinical problem, but you, you will think that maybe it's a tumor cell that are breaking down the bone, but the reality is it is very important to understand that the tumor cells, no matter how aggressive they are, do not have this highly specialized function to break down the bone. The only cell type that is in our body that is able to break down the bone is this so-called ossiclast, as you can see in here. So these this cells come from the monocytic lineage of precursors that they fuse with each other under the influence of, of uh, growth factors. And they form these giant cells main, uh, containing dozens or even over <coughs> 100 nuclei. And they, saw, they form these resulting pits in the surface of the bone and secrete enzymes, acids, protease to break down the bone matrix. So this process happens in normal healthy people because it's important for bone renewal. Uh, so osteoclasts remove the bone and osteoclasts then build the bone to maintain the strength and integrity of the bone tissue. But when you look at a bone lesion, you can see the tumor is growing out in the right side and the, the bone matrix in the left side. Lining the surface of the bone are these big cells with multinuclear and with darker red staining. Those are not the tumor cells. Those are osteoclasts. And they are hyperactive. You can see, you can see completely line out the bone surface. So this is a very direct visual representation of the fact that the tumor cells are simply using the osteoclasts as forced labor. They recruit them, they hyperactivate them so that they do the job of bone degradation for them. This not only create physical space for the tumor to continue to expand, but it also serve important signaling functions as well because the bone matrix store a lot of growth factors. And upon degradation, they could be released and signaled back not only to tumor cells, but also stromal cells, and potentially enhance the aggressiveness of the tumor. So to understand how this happened, we need to know how tumor cells hijack and activate the osteoclast activity. This is a very important aspect of tumor stroma interaction studies. <coughs> so the basic understanding is that the, the osteoclast resolve the bone, the osteoclast build the bone, and this is maintained in perfect balance, uh, in part through secretion of cytokines. So, so osteoblasts 
produce a cytokine called Rangel that activate all the cross differentiation. It also produce another growth factor, which is essentially a decoy receptor for Rangel called OPG that antagonizes its function. So that is basically balanced secretion of these two factors will maintain the, the, the right balance at the, the site of bone remodeling. <clears throat> now, when tumor cells come in, they will produce a lot of secretive factors, and then, then they will influence this bone homeostasis and tip them into one direction or the other. In breast cancer, it's usually oscillatic region, so, so usually you get hyperactive oscillatic activity. This could be achieved in several different ways. The tumor cell themselves could produce either high-level Rangel or other factors like GMCSF and other growth factors that could directly stimulate oscillatic differentiation. Alternatively, they can produce other class of factors, for example, um, uh, PDHRP, that could signal to the osteoblasts and influence their secretion of Rangel on OPG, or either increasing Rangel or decreasing production of OPG, that will indirectly cause the imbalance of osteoclast activity. So that's one direction of communication. The tumor cell can also feedback. Uh, the, the, stromos, the tumor stromal, the, the bone cells and bone microenvironment could also feedback to tumor cells. We know osteoblasts and osteoclasts can produce also growth factors, matrix proteins that either promote tumor growth or form the so-called niche, specialized niche to promote the survival and the growth of cancer cells. And as I mentioned earlier, bone itself is a very important source of growth factors. And that include, for example, calcium, insulin growth factor, and then transforming growth factor beta that, that is very abundant in the bone matrix. So it's been suspected through some in vitro studies that bone resorption can release TJ beta, and that potentially could increase the aggressiveness of the cancer cell. Uh, and a few years ago, we, we done study using imaging studies, uh, reports using reports of TJ beta password to show indeed that's happening. Bone lysis release TJ beta feedback to tumor to activate the TJ beta pathway. And that is important driving the continuous growth of bone metastasis. <coughs> and what we also later found is among the TJ beta downstream genes in the cancer cell, Jagged one is one, such, one of such important TJ beta target genes that drive the, the, the increased bone metastasis behavior of cancer cell in the bone microenvironment. And there are several lines of evidence to support that. Uh, first of all, looking at the isogenic series of cell lines with increasing bone metastatic ability and try to find correlation with JAG1 expression. You can see the 41 series with increasing metastatic, metastatic behavior. So 41 is the only one that can make bone metastasis. You can see JAG1 as well as few other NOS family ligands are highly expressed in the 41. Um, this is another series that uh, I derived when I was posted with John Massengate. These are single cell progenies derived from MDMB231. With some of them are highly metastatic to bone, in, so in red, and some of them are weakly metastatic to bone. And among these North family ligands, only Jack and one is highly associated with bone tropic sublines. Not only that, the reason we also focus on Jack one is among the microarray data we have, Jack one is the only North family ligand that is strongly induced by TJ beta signaling. So in 41, it's high in basal level, but it's further strongly induced within 24 hours of TJ beta. <coughs> More importantly, combine all of that in vitro and mouse model studies, in the clinical patient samples, you can look at the primary tumor JAG1 expression, and you can see that correlate with their risk of bone metastasis. So when they, the tumor have high level JAG1, they have a high risk of bone metastasis uh, to occur. So 
um, we, we did find some study to knock down Jaguar to see how what it influence bone metastasis. So we knocked down Jaguar, reduce also its response to TGF beta. And this Jaguar not now highly aggressive cell line from MDA to Suwang have almost tenfold decrease in the bone metastasis burden. This is by bioluminescent imaging. You can see that in here, Jaguar not now reduced bone metastasis burden, bone is protected, and also. Um, not only the tumor cell will reduce JAG1 have gross disadvantage in the bone microenvironment, they also have less ability to recruit osteoclasts. So if you use trap standing, this is the marker for osteoclasts. JAG1 not down in the bone and tumor interface, they are a lot less, this rest standing trap part the osteoclasts. So the conclusion is that, so interesting in this experiment, the xenograph experiment, what we did is we also not only look at bone metastasis, we also look at the primary tumor growth, right, in, in the subcutaneous or membrane tumor analysis. And in that setting, knocking down all overexpressed JAG1 do not influence primary tumor <clears throat> growth. So the conclusion is that this is a bona fide bone metastasis gene because it only drives bone metastasis. It doesn't have, seem to have an influence in the primary tumor growth that fit the criteria of metastasis gene. So, um, and also, the, we argue the reason JAG1 give the tumor cell a growth advantage is because it's able to engage bone tumor cell, not only to give tumor a growth advantage, but also to allow them to recruit osteoclasts efficiently. And so to analyze that, we, we, we perform cocos experiments. So JAG1 is a ligand for knots that require ligand binding receptor in direct cell cell interactions. And then they activate this gamma secretase dependent cleavage of the intracellular domain of knots to activate downstream gene pathway. So there are no inhibitors of the, the pathway, including gamma sequelates that has been uh, tested in the clinic. So what we did is, because this requires cell-cell contact, we developed this co-culture assay of tumor cell labeled with GFP and luciferase, co-culture with the osteoblast that we now express the knots uh, receptor. And what we notice is that when you look at the green tumor cell colonies, when they are in co-culture with the osteoblasts, they will grow to become much bigger colonies, and, and it's at almost double the rate of growth. And this growth advantage only exists in the co-culture, because if you culture Jaguar high tumor alone, they don't have this growth advantage. Also, if you treat this co-culture with GSI to block non-signaling, you eliminate this growth advantage. And so this is a very useful system because it allows us to look at the interaction. We also allow us to separate these different cells, to look at the gene, differential gene expression. What we, what we figure out is that when tumor cells have high-level JAG1, they activate North signal in the stroke, the osteoblast, and allow osteoblast to produce high level of growth factors like interleukin-6, CDGF, those feedback to tumor to promote their growth. And that explains this growth that event is here. The other phenotype we observe is this increased osteoclast differentiation. And we, again, can do co-culture of the tumor cell with pre-osteoclast, and then we use trough staining to look for mature osteoclast. That will stain the cell in red or in purple. Uh, you can see that when the tumor have high level JAG1, there are a lot more trap, you know, osteoclast, trap positive osteoclast differentiation. And again, this process is blocked with GSI. So, so the model here is that essentially, the TJ beta north pathway connect to each other to form this so-called vicious cycle in driving tumor stromal interactions in lithic bone metastasis. So the bone upon lysis by osteoclast encouraged by tumor cell will release TJ beta. And most of the breast cancer cells maintain this mainstream TJ beta signal pathway, TJ receptor and SMAT expression. 
So TJBeta will activate the, the TJBeta pathway, and one of the downstream gene is JAG1. So JAG1 will engage bone somal cell in at least two different ways. In Osbras, it allows the, the Osbras to produce high level of growth factor like including the 6 and CDGF that feedback to promote tumor growth. In the case of Osbras progenitor, JAG1 can induce the NFATC1 is the master transcriptional factor of Osbras differentiation. And that will, of course, induce more osseoclast activity and more bone degradation, and more release of TJ beta. So this is a positive feedback loop that will self-propagate itself. And the importance of this is that it indicates potential windows of therapeutic interventions to block and intercept this feedback loop. And we already showed before that we can use TJ beta pass uh, inhibitor to block this. We, uh, we can also use, uh, for example, gamma sequence inhibitor to block notch. Um, and the problem with GSI is highly toxic. You probably, some of you probably use that. It's, it causes severe GI tract toxicity because it eliminates many of the gut stem cells. Um, but actually, this project was started when, when Mark approached us to ask us to test GSI in the bone metastasis model, and we know there's a efficacy in reducing bone metastasis. And based on that, we figure out this, this mechanism. And actually tell us a potential new way of blocking this pathway instead of using highly toxic GSI, we could use a more selective inhibitor using, using JAK1 neutralizing antibody. That's, that will have, as we show, it has almost no toxicity in the GI tract, much better than GSI. So we collaborate with Mgen to develop this JAK1 neutralizing antibody. And we show that we can test that first in vitro. So you can use this pre-osteoclast cell line, and you use high level Rankel to use, induce osteoclast differentiation. If you use low dose of Rankel, five times lower, you can induce the osteoclast differentiation. If you do the same experiment with low dose Rankel, but culture the cell with JAK1 coated plate, you can induce full osteoclast differentiation. So Rankel synthesized with JAK1 to induce osteoclast differentiation in a rank L low condition. So this is the perfect assay to test whether JAG1 neutralizes antibody is effective. So you test that, and indeed, this antibody completely blocks JAG1 dependent osteoclast differentiation. So it works in vitro. Then we test in vivo uh, using two different kind of treatments. So control IgG, the JAG1 antibody, and then OPG, this is the natural antagonist of rank L, equivalent to denosumab. This is the Noxman is the, the rank L including antibody developed by Engine. So this is the standard of care. And you can see the standard of care it does have about five-fold decrease of bone ability. The test that we have, JAG1 antibody, is actually slightly better than OBG in reducing the burden up to almost tenfold decrease in bone burden. So both treatments are effective in reducing bone burden. In trap staining for osteoclast, you can see the untreated mice have a lot of osteoclast in the bone surface and that is significantly reduced in both treatments. The bone is protected in both cases. This is bone is completely disrupted in the control treatment. There's an interesting difference. So, so uh, OPG treatment, because it blocks all osteoclast activity, including pathological and physiological osteoclast activity, you have this abnormal increase of the tropical bone density. The bone is basically being filled up because normal bone remodeling is blocked. Block. The JAG1 actually only blocks pathological osteoclast activity and normal bone remodeling is not inhibited. So this is potentially better. And also the mice treat with JAG1 anybody have no side effects as we can see. So this is probably cleaner and more effective treatment compared to, to, um, to um, GSI. 
So the reason I show all of this is that we can indeed use the xenograph model and we can identify so-called organotropic metastasis gene to bone in the case here, it's JAK1. And based on that, we can potentially develop a new treatments based on the knowledge we gain. So it's all, all fun uh, and fine. And, uh, and we decided to go one step further to make a transgenic mouse overexpressing JAK1 in the mammogram. Reason for that, that is that many of the transgenic mouse model of human breast cancer do not metastasize. Actually, there's no model so far that is able to metastasize to bone effectively. Um, so we have this pipe dream hoping that if we make an MNTB transgenic mice expressing JAK1 in the mammogram, maybe we will be able to get mammogram tumors to go to bone, and that would be a great model to study bone metastasis. So we make that. We make uh, MNTB JAK1 transgenic mice, cross it with MNTB polymer middle T mice, and they do make tumors, and we look at bone metastasis, and to our disappointment, they don't go to bone. So, so it's not sufficient, at least in the model, to drive this mammogram tumors in the mice to go to bone. But what we notice is that actually the MNTV JAK1 transgenic mice, the polymer tumors, will kill the mice much faster compared to the wild type mice without JAK1 overexpression. And the reason for that is that the, those primary tumors grow much more aggressively compared to the wild type wild type uh, tumors. So, and this advantage is depending on JAK1 because Again, when we use the JAK1 neutralizing antibody in green, we can completely inhibit this advantage conferred by JAK1 transgenic overexpression in the mammogram. So this is interesting because in this spontaneous mammogram tumor model, apparently JAK1 gives the primary tumor a growth advantage that we did not see in the xenograph models. And, and so what this is arguing is that JAK1 not only is a bomatized gene, but also could be a primary tumor promoting gene as well that we can only see in the appropriate mouse model of spontaneous, you know, natural progression of bone, uh, cancer in the polymer <laughs> T model. And apparently, in the mammogram, primary tumor, there is no osteoclast or osteoblast. So what, if JAK1 is doing anything to engage small stroma, bone, uh, tumor, primary tumor stroma, it must be engaging a completely different stroma cell type. So the argument is that JAK1 we indeed can see about 30% of primary tumors have high-level JAK1. And those primary tumors select for JAK1 high tumors because they give them a growth advantage in primary tumor. And when those tumor metastasis disseminate to bone, they also conveniently have the advantage to engage bone stromal cells to, to promote bone metastasis. <laughs> so there you have this, this model. So in that so-called strictly you know, categorized metastasis does indeed give the primary tumor cell a growth advantage. We didn't realize that earlier simply because we didn't use the right model. We used xenogram models. And so going back to Weinberg's opinion <coughs> article that you probably have the last laugh that indeed you have this example here. What he predict is true. We just didn't know enough in many of the so-called metastasis that we identified at that time. So I will use the last five minutes also to give you the last story. You argue that, well, this is rather artificial. We start with the xenograph model, and we find this so-called bone metastasis JAK1, and, and we, we make this claim that it's a connection with primary tumor formation. And how about starting from human patients, try to find important metastasis genes, and see if that is important for, for primary tumor growth? This is actually a very important question, because um, you know, when, you, when you look at human breast cancer, it's a very heterogeneous disease. 
the patients could have the same subtype of cancer, same size, but distinct survival outcome. And so there's also need to so-called find those so-called prognosis markers, not only depending on pathological features, that will give a more accurate prediction of the long-term survival prospect of the patient so that we can treat it accordingly. And this was done uh, about the same time as Weinberg, actually Bob based in part his argument on this paper. Because this paper argued that you can actually look at a primary tumor gene signature that could predict metastatic behavior. And indeed, um, this, this poor prognosis tumors that have these signatures, 50 gene up, 20 gene down, behave aggressively um, compared to those good prognosis tumors. And this has been translated into a, a, a clinical test called Mammoprint that has been used in the clinic to uh, give the patients an unbiased score of the risk of recurrence and metastasis. But this doesn't help patients in terms of, you know, if there's a poor performance patient, we tell them you have poor performance tumor, we don't, but we can't tell her why you have a poor performance tumor. Is there any gene driving it? And whether we have a drug to help you reduce the risk of, poor, uh, of, of recurrence. So we want to know among this, you know, so-called poor prognosis genes, uh, can we find functional drivers of metastasis? Indeed, actually, when you look at the genes here, many of them are actually housekeeping genes. Very hard to imagine why they can be driving metastasis. So we want to step back and actually think about, we have this microarray data already available in a patient. Can we use that to find drivers of metastasis? We look back in the history of cancer gene discovery, and you, you often find that important drivers of oncogenesis are only often located, those genes are often located in genomic loci that are affected by either translocation or amplifications or deletions and so on. So for example, in PCR-ABLE, this is the oncogene for, uh, for CML. It's because of the Philadelphia chromosome formed by the translocation of chromosome 9 to 22 that created PCR-ABLE fusing oncogene. And same is true with human breast cancer. Uh, HER2 is amplifying about 20 to 30% of breast cancer patients, and that is a functional driver of breast cancer. So this is looking at the difference between the copy number of translocation between the tumor versus normal cells. Can we find genomic alterations, for example, amplifications of genomic locus comparing poor prognosis tumors versus good prognosis tumors? Because we can, if we can find those locus, we can then try to look dig deep into it and to try, try to find potentially functional drivers of metastasis. And so the idea is that if you have uh, the, so if, if a genomic locus is amplified, if a genomic locus is amplified in poor prognosis tumors, all the genes in that neighborhood, in that locus and nearby sites are likely to be overexpressed together. So conversely, if you already have differential gene expression data from patients of good prognosis versus poor prognosis, you line up these genes along the chromosome, and if you find a region that somehow those genes seem to be overexpressed together, that genomic locus is likely to be amplified without actually physically know whether it's amplified or not. So it's a com computational deconvolution based on mRNA data to predict DNA copy number change. And, and so using that mathematical calculation, giving basically different locus and a nearby gene different weight, the closer to the locus, the higher weight they get, we do this conversion and identify so-called genomic gain or genomic loss in different data sets of mRNA expression profile. And using three different data sets, 
we, we can actually find in chromosome AQ, um, you can see this recurrent amplifications, very sharp peak here. The beauty of this is instead of comparing the CGH, you are actually pulling thousands of data together. And this is overexpression of gene, and the amplification of locus is directly linked to overexpression of gene. So it's more likely to be found something important. Instead of, you know, some of the locus is amplified but not overexpressed. And it's a very sharp peak that um, we show that indeed if you just use this so-called neighborhood score uh, along AQ22, you can, you can see still it has very strong prognosis power. And so we, we, we go back to tumor samples to show indeed this AQ22 is amplified. In a lot of tumors have high copy number AQ22, and indeed it's a prognosis. So this is validating computational prediction that this region is amplified and has poor prognosis. And because it's a very sharp peak, we, all, we have only a, a, about a dozen genes that we could basically focus on half dozen of them that we, we know, based on their non-biological function, might have a role in metastasis. We overexpress them one by one, and hearing overexpression alone out of these several genes is able to drive increased lung metastasis. So this is published back five years back, showing an evaluation of methylene as a lung metastasis gene. And indeed, about 30% to 40% of breast tumors, you can see methylene is highly expressed in the primary tumors and it's associated with poor prognosis. So there you have a so-called metastasis or poor prognosis gene, but we can clearly see it in a primary tumor. And we actually don't know why it's overexpressed in a primary tumor. So again, we go back, we, we have this gene, we, we make a knockout mice of materian. Unfortunately, knockout materian in the mice have no side, no effect at all. The, the mice is viable, fertile. There's a slight delay in branching morphogenesis, but by purity, the branching morphogenesis catch up. There's no defect in, in branching morphogenesis, no defect in, in pregnancy and feeding. This is in pregnancy, there's no difference at all. But interestingly, when you cross this materian whole body knockout, with different mouse strains of memory gland tumors of different subtypes. So polyamide immunity, the new model, and the, uh, and the uh, wind model. So wind is, wind is more uh, basal-like, polyamide immunity, and, and HER2 is more uh, luminal-like. And then the carcinogen-induced tumor, this is heterogeneous, all different subtypes. In all cases, you can see the blue is homozygous knockout, the green is heterozygous knockout, red is wild type. And this is tumor burden, this is survival. In three different models, in all cases, you can see uh, knocking out material dramatically decrease the formation of the primary tumors and the survival is improved of the mice. Also, we saw that in the prostate cancer as well. And the reason is that when you look at the hypoplasia state, you can already see a difference. So comparing three different models, knockout material has dramatic reduction of this hypoplasia state in, in, in the mice. Um, and oftentimes before the tumor emerge, you see an expansion of the preneoplastic population using CD24 and CD29 <coughs> markers. For example, in the polyamino T model, you can see this expansion of the luminal population. In the, in, the, in the WIM model, you can see the expansion of the, the, the basal or stem cell-like population. And in all cases, if you knock out material, this expansion of the preneoplastic population tumor initiating population is dramatically reduced back to a more normal state. Uh, we also did the tumor initiation study both using both memosphere and tumor uh, limited dilution analysis of tumor initiation, basically showing that uh, knocking down, knocking out material significantly reduced memosphere formation and tumor initiation. Uh, 
So the model is that, again, this is a classically defined metastasis because in the xenograft model, there's no difference in primary tumor growth. Um, it, when you inject high dose of tumor cells, but apparently it's very important to allow tumor, uh, primary tumor uh, initiation. <coughs> Reason is that uh, the you know wild type mice that have high high level metering allow the expansion of the plastic population, but the wild in the metering knockout this population is is eliminated. So this is again another example that showing a connection between metastasis gene actually to early stage of uh, tumor initiation. So the conclusion is that um, we I think we start to have a better grasp of how does the tumor cell acquire the metastatic trace. And you can see this is not a random process happen in different snapshots of the cascade. There is oftentimes a continuum. When a tumor cell adapt, try to adapt to different challenges during the lifetime of tumor initiation, invasion, and, and dissemination, they acquire certain traits that oftentimes later also give them an advantage even in a different situation. So, so what we know is that you know the acquired development on the metastasis reflect these different challenges the tumor cell has to face. In the in the primary tumor side, they have to first overcome this linear specific restriction when they become mature, differentiate the cell. And one of the ways to overcome that is to lose that terminal differentiation drivers, transcription factors. So it's not surprising that you're going to see more and more examples of different type of tumors losing those terminal differentiation factors and revert back to a more embryonic state because that's actually important for driving their metastatic behavior. And again, also a lot of genes that we use in our model to, to identify as organ-specific metastasis genes, when we start to use genetically modified mouse model, we oftentimes would not be surprised to see they also have a role, perhaps different role, perhaps similar roles uh, in driving primary tumor initiation. And that argue for the importance of combining different models, the xenograft models, the patient-derived xenografts, and also genetically modified mouse models, because not a single model will give you a accurate picture of the natural progression of disease in the patients. We need all of them to really obtain a complete understanding of what the differential role the different genes have in different stages of cancer progression. So the work I show you today uh, is done by many of the talented postdoctoral fellows and students in the lab. The work of um, uh, Alpha is done by postdoctoral fellow Mela Chakrabarty, and uh, she's a senior postdoctoral fellow and, and should be ready to look for faculty position next year, so if you are going to recruit, you know, that could be a good candidate. Uh, she, she, she pioneered really the field of uh, linking uh, memory gland stem cell study with, uh, with uh, metastasis. Uh, a lot of work on bone metastasis done by graduate student in the lab, and what I highlight today is the work by Nile Sari, who is an MD PhD student who did the um, study of Jack Wang, and he's now doing a, a fellowship in, in Donald Farber now another potential faculty candidate later. <laughs> uh, Li Wang is a graduate student who just finished up, and uh, hopefully she, her paper will be accepted soon, and she's moving to uh, postdoctoral training at Rockefeller. And Han Zhu also contributed to the work of Jack Wang, the transgenic studies. So with that, I want to thank you for your attention and take your question. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for your talk. This was very, very interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about the first part of your talk, the UF5. Yes. So Jin Yang, in her work, showed that post-1 can actually control snail 1 and snail 2. 
you show using ELL5 that um, twist one is also regulated. I'm just wondering why you chose SNAIL2 rather than twist one. Yeah, so, so, so oftentimes when we, when we try to look for a target, we try to use an unbiased way. Oftentimes people pick a you know, favorite one. We try to be unbiased. Actually, when you look at a heat map of the normal memory gland, in the wild type versus alpha knockout, many of those genes are actually all upregulated in the alpha knockout animal. But that's a steady state, right? It's a chronic knockout of the memory gland. And we think some of that is indirect, right? When the cell becomes active, of course, they express those genes. We want to find the direct targets. And the way to find that is to do transient overexpressing of L5, very acute response, and then combine that with chromatin IP experiment. And by doing that, uh, within 24 <coughs> hours of L5 overexpressing, only L5, only uh, SNAIL2 goes down. And that gives us the reason why we, and also in the promoter, only uh, SNAIL2 have this L5 binding sites by chromatin IP, and we also confirm that. We chrom the report, it's, it's all in the paper, so I didn't go through that. Yeah. Yes? If I understand the model correctly, we're just talking about now the oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes lead to an epithelial cell that now is malignant and yeah. somehow epigenetically or otherwise ELF is inhibited mm. and EMT occurs and metastasis ensues. Mm. Is that, that's yeah, you Yeah, you could think that could, could be a so scenario. So how do you distinguish that from the transformation events occurring in a precursor cell, mm -hmm. and there being stochastic differentiation um, of these cells, and they happen to be located in the epithelium, but that it's these more primitive cells that um, don't go on to differentiate to some degree, that have mesenchymal characteristics, and they give rise to the metastasis. Right, so it's, um, so the target cell population, we actually don't know uh, in many of the studies. We don't know. So his, his argument is that maybe the cells don't really require lots of L5 to gain mesenchymal phenotype. Perhaps, for example, in cancer, in the normal memory line stem cell, or percentage cell that still maintains some, some mesenchymal features or stem, at least stemness, they acquire oncogene and they, they're ready to go. Uh, that, that could be a possible, possible scenario. Um, I think there are some studies being done uh, trying to overexpress oncogene in different lineages of the cell. Um, I don't think that has been done in breast cancer. Uh, that, you know, I think it's a possible scenario. We, don't, we just don't know whether that actually happened in breast cancer. And it will only be done using linear tracing. You, you, over, you specifically overexpress the oncogene in a SNAIL2 positive population, right, in the mammogram stem cell population. And um, so I think the scenario happens, uh, could exist. We don't, we don't know whether it, this is more prominent than the other model that the differential cell acquire, lose L5 and acquire SNAIL2. Both could happen. We don't know which one is more frequent. Yes? Beautiful talk. Um, you'd mentioned that in the jagged siRNA experiments that the tumor cells were unable to recruit osteoblasts. And so does that imply that the cells are still disseminating, but that once they get you know, to the bone or any other side, they, they, they don't have that forced labor that you were referring to? Right, right. Get, I mean, has, do you know if there are still disseminated tumor cells? So the, the JAGA-1 knockdown cell can still make bone metastasis. They're just less efficient. So if you look at the, the uh, 
the bioluminescent curve, it's about tenfold reduction of bone metallic burden, but it still go this way. It doesn't go this way, right? Okay. So, so, so knocking down, knocking down Jack Wang reduces it, but doesn't really complete. You know, uh, the belief is that in those organs specific metallic, there's a cohort of genes driving the most aggressive cell possess many of these genes, and they can compensate to each other to a certain degree. And that's why it's very hard to actually, so far, know this, none of these targeted treatments against metastasis gene are able to completely reverse metastasis. You can only slow down, but not reverse. Yeah. Dr. That one first. Yeah. First question. Um, yeah, so does non-bone metastasis increase with JAG1 inhibition? Yeah. Uh, uh, JAG1 inhibition, we have not done. In, you know, there are people who study brain metastasis. Um, and so Jack Wang also is involved in brain metastasis. We have not done that yet, but I'm not surprised if, if you can find that uh, in other organ metastasis as well. Yeah. Thank you.